0: Hello and welcome to the January 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always, Professor Art Leonard from New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, uh, the last month of 2014 and the first week of 2015 have not been, unlike the rest of last year, filled with developments on the marriage equality front. Where do we stand today, Art? Where we stand today
1: is we have 36 states, as of today, actually, because we are taping this on uh, January 6th, which is the day when same-sex couples in Florida can get married everywhere in the state. Uh, although there are, I think, at least 16 courthouses where they can't actually get married, although they can get a license. Yeah. Because uh, a bunch of counties have decided that they don't want to stress their staff with having to perform marriages they might have objections to. So, but uh, the lead up to this, in mean, December was a very interesting month on this because uh, the Federal District Court back in August. Uh, District Judge Robert Hinkle had ruled that the ban on same-sex marriage in Florida was unconstitutional, and he had stayed his ruling for 90 days uh, basically to see what would happen with the Supreme Court and the pending cert petitions from other circuits. Uh, After the Supreme Court denied all the cert petitions and allowed same-sex marriage to go into effect, uh, first in the directly affected states and ultimately in all the states in the the circuits, three, three circuits that were involved, Uh, and then the Ninth Circuit issued a decision the day after, Uh, Judge Hinkle decided to extend his stay to give the state time to seek a stay from the Eleventh Circuit or the Supreme Court. So in December, the Eleventh Circuit turned down the state's uh, request for a stay, and then the Supreme Court on December 19th turned down the request for the stay. And the issue was, would same-sex marriage go into effect throughout the state of Florida? Uh, state officials uh, and even the county clerk in Washington County who was sued in the case in question uh, raised some questions about the scope of Judge Hinkle's injunction. Uh, The claim was that the injunction ran against two state officials and therefore the state itself would be precluded from enforcing the ban, but that it also named only one clerk as a defendant, the clerk in Washington County, and quite literally, ordered her to provide a relief to the plaintiffs, a single uh, same-sex couple. So she asked the court in the wake of much discussion and argumentation in the state about how uh, much had to go into effect when the stay was lifted, she asked Judge Hinkle for clarification. And he asked the state to uh, weigh in and the parties uh, to the lawsuit to weigh in on what the scope of his injunction was. And keeping everyone in great suspense, he released his decision on New Year's Day. He may be one of the only judges in the United States who was working on that federal holiday. Mm -hmm. And he issued an opinion stating that uh, actually his injunction as such only applied to that clerk uh, and required her to issue a license to the plaintiff couple in that case. But he said... When my stay is lifted, my constitutional ruling goes into effect statewide, and therefore it is unconstitutional for the clerks in all the other counties to refuse to issue marriage licenses uh, or to perform marriages. Uh, So the state threw in the towel, basically, at that point. Uh, And uh, Attorney General Bondi said uh, yesterday, January 5th, as the first marriages were being conducted in the evening, she said, "Uh, we wish you well. With friends like her. Yes, with friends (laughs) like her. And there was even some speculation that the state might back down from appealing to the 11th Circuit. They've noticed their appeal, uh, but their uh, brief isn't due yet for a while. And the 11th Circuit certainly hasn't scheduled arguments. So who knows? But there are other states in the 11th Circuit where litigation is pending. So this case is going to get up there. The issue is going to get up there at some point, although it's possible that it won't get there before the Supreme Court does something. And that was the other really major development of December, the filing of briefs in the Supreme Court uh, in support of the petitions for cert. Uh, They had actually been mainly filed uh, rather early. But then later in the month, the petitions for the states. And in this case, unlike the uh, petitions that were uh, uh, pending back in October, in this case, all the states... Are opposed to same-sex marriage. But interestingly, all of the states except one urged the Supreme Court to take the case. In fact, even uh, the state of Louisiana, where Lambda Legal had filed a petition for cert before judgment since uh, the Lambda case uh, in, in Louisiana was on appeal in the Fifth Circuit and is in fact going to be argued on January 9th in the Fifth Circuit, they had filed the petition. And Louisiana said, yeah, take our case too. In fact, take our case instead of all the others because it's the best one for you to take. Uh, everyone is jockeying to be the case that goes except except for the people in Tennessee <laughs> uh, who don't want to go up Yeah. and and who say there's no need to grant review here. Just because there's a circuit split, there's no need to grant review. Uh, every state can rest where they are. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it is widely anticipated that at its January 9th conference, at which all of these cert petitions are now listed on the agenda, that the Supreme Court is likely to grant cert in mm-hmm. one of these cases.
0: And we actually have the, a new cert petition from Idaho. Correct? Yes,
1: uh, two, two cert petitions, <laughs> uh, because both the governor and the attorney general were sued, and say so they both filed cert petitions. Uh, and uh, they're saying, uh, of course, we are in a state that already has a court of appeals decision, uh, in fact, it ruled against us. Uh, we've got a petition for on-bank review pending. But, you know, just as, as long as everyone else is, is petitioning for cert, we may as well petition for cert as well. Uh-huh. So ask the Supreme Court to take our case regardless of whether the Ninth Circuit grants on-bank review, which they seem unlikely to do. Uh, but anyway, this issue is knocking at the Supreme Court's door. But I think – and this is this is the point of our lead article in the January issue – that the Supreme Court has already signaled where things are going. Uh, It's possible that no cert petition will be granted on January 9th because the court doesn't always make a decision on cert petitions at the first conference where it discusses them. Sometimes it takes more than one conference. If a uh, member of the court asks for further time to think about it, they will put it to the next conference, which will be later in January. The later they grant cert, the less likely it is that a decision will occur this term of the court. Uh, So a lot of people are rooting for them to grant cert in one or more cases on January 9th, because if they do, it seems very, very likely that it will be argued in the spring and decided by the summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at this point, I mean, when you add Florida, we only have 14 states that don't have marriage equality, and even one of those in Missouri, you can get marriage licenses in certain counties, Mm -hmm. and the state is recognizing out-of-state marriages. uh, Having not asked for a stay of a uh, trial court decision on that issue, so uh, it's at, at this point we're far past what people have called the Loving versus Virginia tipping point. Uh, when the Supreme Court banned miscegenation laws, laws against interracial marriage, uh, there were more. There were more than fourteen states that banned it. I think there were over twenty states that banned it at that point. Uh, so. Right now, we have states that represent over 70% of the country's population where we have marriage equality. And the most significant thing, of course, is the Supreme Court's action on December 19th in denying an extension of the stay in Florida. Since there is no uh, ruling in the 11th Circuit yet, they could have followed the same course that they followed all of last year before October 6th when they routinely stayed trial court decisions pending review by the Court of Appeals, and then those Court of Appeals stayed their rulings, or the Supreme Court stayed their rulings pending uh, consideration of cert petitions. Uh, So this is the first time that the Supreme Court has allowed a trial court's marriage equality decision to go into effect without the benefit of a Court of Appeals decision affirming it. And that, to me, sends a strong signal that at least a majority of the court feels there's no need to stay those rulings because even if the Court of Appeals reverses the Florida decision, the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of marriage equality. We, we have a majority there. Uh, it's incautious to say it. We can't say it 100 percent. But their decision not to extend the stay in Florida doesn't make any logical sense unless a majority of the court sees that they're going to be ruling ultimately for marriage equality.
0: One other interesting thing to mention about the Supreme Court before we move on, Uh, in all this coverage of Mario Cuomo dying recently, it's been widely reported that he was President Clinton's first choice for the seat that ultimately went to Justice Ginsburg. So it's interesting to think about what might have happened. We might have had a vacancy right before uh,
1: all this stuff is happening. That's true, or it is possible... That uh, as Supreme Court justices tend to be long live, that Mr. Cuomo would have had extra years of life yeah, had he yeah. accepted that appointment. To right, do right, court. right. Uh, but anyway, there's other
0: things happening uh,
1: in the Fifth Circuit. We also have argument this week. That's right, right Art. We, we have uh, argument in the Fifth Circuit. We have wins in Texas and Mississippi that are being appealed by the state, and we have the loss in Louisiana that's being appealed by Lambda Legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Mississippi case, we have Robbie Kaplan, who represented Edie Windsor in the U.S. Supreme Court in the DOMA case. Uh, she's working on that case.
0: Yeah, I saw her at a holiday party. She's raring to go.
1: She is raring to go. I think uh, she'd like to push it fast and see if she can get up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, we also have developments in other circuits. In the First Circuit, we have an appeal by Lambda Legal of an adverse decision by a federal district judge in Puerto Rico. All of the states in the First Circuit have marriage equality. And not as a result of federal court rulings, as a result of state court rulings and legislative action. Uh, so this is the first time for the First Circuit to weigh in. They set a January 26 deadline on the uh, plaintiff's submission of their appellate brief, uh, which sounds to me like this is a case that isn't going to be argued until sometime in the spring. And it may become irrelevant, of course, if the Supreme Court is, is deciding a case. Uh, we also have a development in the Fourth Circuit, where North and South Carolina uh, were swept in by the Supreme Court's denial of cert in the Virginia case on October 6th. So the district courts ruled in favor of marriage equality in those states, and uh, the Fourth Circuit has refused to stay them. But nonetheless, the attorney generals of both states have filed appeals to the Fourth Circuit, claiming our state is different, we have different arguments to make, Uh, and uh, the court has consolidated them, but said these cases will be in abeyance until we find out what the Supreme Court is going to do. And they said, after the Supreme Court has made its decision on the pending cert petitions, let us know what they've decided, <laughs> since it will be a great mystery to us. Since none of us uh, look at the Supreme Court's website or SCOTUS <laughs> blog or follow the news, Right. we judges uh, live in ignorance. Yeah. So advise us of what happens, and then we'll decide when to schedule argument in this case, or, or if we're going to schedule argument in this case. In the Tenth Circuit, uh... Kansas. Kansas is the precalcitrant state in the Tenth Circuit. Even though there are district court decisions uh, and state trial decisions, I believe, as well, Uh, in Kansas, nonetheless, the state is hanging tough. They're claiming the decisions only apply in certain counties. Uh, They uh, were seeking uh, to go directly to on-bank in the Tenth Circuit. They said it it would make no sense for us to have to uh, appeal this to a three-judge panel because a three-judge panel would be bound – by the prior Tenth Circuit rulings, which were denied review by the Supreme Court. So we want to go directly on bank. And the circuit turned them down, which is as much as saying, you lose at the Tenth Circuit, because the Tenth Circuit has decided this issue and the, uh, the judges at the circuit are not of a mind to reconsider. Uh, and then, of course, in the Eighth Circuit, uh, we have several cases pending, uh, but no action yet uh, on, on scheduling arguments, as far as I know. Uh, so, I think if the Supreme Court grants one or more uh, petitions, as a result of this January ninth, uh, everything else will be on in, ab- in abeyance yeah. uh, until the Supreme Court decides. It makes no sense for any judge to stick their neck out. Yeah, you know, as as long as the Supreme Court is going to take the heat.
0: All right, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss a decision from the full active First Circuit bench uh, that one dissenter called the Plessy versus Ferguson for the transgender community. All right, we're back discussing CoSelect versus Spencer, a decision from the on-bank First Circuit, reversing uh, an earlier First Circuit panel and a district court judge who both concluded that the Eighth Amendment Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause required the State uh, Department of Corrections to provide sexual reassignment surgery to a transgender prisoner. What should our listeners know about this case, Art?
1: Well, this, this came out as a bit of a surprise. Uh, to everyone, but then I guess the uh, the grant of on bank review came as a surprise. The Fifth Circuit, at the time the petition for on bank review was filed, had only five active judges, and a majority of them had made up the panel. But it was a two to one vote in the panel. Uh, since then, a an additional judge has been seated in the First Circuit, but uh, because he was not seated at the time this case was being considered, he didn't participate in the on bank review, uh, which of course could have caused problems because it could have been a tie vote. But then a tie vote would have probably left the three-judge panel decision in effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in any event, this is uh, Michelle Koselik is a life prisoner with no possibility of parole. Uh, She was convicted of the murder of her wife. Uh, She was married to a woman while uh, living under a male identity, but struggling with her gender identity.
0: We often talk about how important a plane of choice is in cases, and unfortunately... This is not the best sort of uh, background well, for a, but, for but, a
1: plaintiff but but once you get into the prison system, uh, I don't think that would make a big difference. Well,
0: some people are saying that's why the case went the way it went well, it's, perhaps it's as a, a matter of, as a matter
1: of politics yeah but uh, the wording of the court doesn't suggest that yeah. uh, the, the problem here is the district judge uh, has had an ongoing uh, role in this case uh, Mark wolf in uh, the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts because from an early stage, uh, Kosalek was seeking treatment for her gender identity disorder and uh, was encountering resistance. Uh, Many state court systems have taken the position that if someone wasn't already on medication when they were incarcerated, they were not going to start them on medication, including hormone treatment. Uh, So she had to sue to get hormone treatment. She had to sue to get permission to dress as a woman and to get them, to require them to address her as a woman. And And she's in a male prison. She's in an all-male prison. Uh, It seems that Massachusetts has only all-male and all-female prisons. There's only one all-female prison. Uh, So the... uh, the state now, under court order, has been, applying, uh, has been supplying hormone therapy, has been supplying psychoanalysis, has allowed her to dress as a woman, is housing her in a male prison, and evidently there have been no problems in terms of security with that. But she insists that she needs the sex reassignment surgery. She needs the last step. Uh, and uh, expert uh, testimony was provided on her behalf, uh, suggesting that uh, she still needs it very badly, uh, that uh, she has suicidal uh, tendencies, that she might uh, harm herself, that she might try to uh, uh, perform surgery on herself using non-sterile stuff that you might come across in a prison. Uh, There are all kinds of uh, expert testimony backing up her claim. Uh, The state brings in their own experts, and their own experts testify the opposite way. Judge Wolf found that Koselik's aspers were more credible, and he ordered the state to provide the surgery. There was an uproar in Massachusetts about this. Uh, lots of commentary, lots of discussion in the legislature, and uh, it became a cause celebra. And uh, the third, uh, the first circuit panel affirmed Judge Wolf in a two-to-one vote, and then it went on bank, and now it's been reversed in a three-to-two vote. Uh, The issue is, under the Eighth Amendment, in order for it to be cruel and unusual punishment to deny a particular medical treatment, it has to be shown that the person has a serious medical condition and that this treatment is the only one that expert testimony would support as adequate to deal with that serious medical problem. And in this case, there was a diversity of expert opinion. Uh, Judge Wolfe found that the most credible expert opinion supported sex reassignment surgery as a necessary treatment. The majority of the on-bank court disputed that. They said, you know, you had a range of experts. Some of them said that this wasn't necessary, that other treatment was, was appropriate or was adequate, and that it doesn't violate the Eighth Amendment. It doesn't violate the deliberate indifference to a serious medical condition standard that the Supreme Court has set for the Department of Corrections to provide a treatment other than the one sought by the prisoner, if another treatment is also supported by credible medical evidence.
0: And we should say for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with uh, appellate litigation that um, usually what happens is um, uh, appellate courts review legal conclusions, but not necessarily factual conclusions unless there's something really odd going on. So that's uh, what a lot of discussion about this case has been as well, is that the court sort of characterized uh, this as a mixed question of law and facts so that they could overturn what was, what was essentially a factual conclusion by the district court
1: judge. Yeah, this was certainly the burden of the dissents. Uh, the two judges who made up the majority in the three-judge panel both dissented uh, separately. They both criticized the majority for overstepping its role as an appellate court. They said, look, the district court made fact findings. There is record support for the fact findings. And under the guise of deciding mixed questions of fact and law, the Court of Appeals is now stepping in and uh, overstepping its role as an appellate court in making its own findings of fact here uh, based on uh, only secondhand acquaintance with the record. They didn't see these experts testify. Uh, They can read a cold transcript, but they can't actually observe. And uh, observing witnesses testifying is an important part of weighing credibility. Mm -hmm. In addition, uh, the state's main defense in this case uh, was not officially premised on the cost of providing this. It was that there would be insuperable security issues if they were required to afford sex reassignment surgery to Michelle Kosilek, They said it would be dangerous to continue to house her in an all-male prison after the surgery uh, when uh, you just don't house women in an all-male prison. On the other hand, they said, the all-female prison, they said there would be serious security issues because Michelle Kosilek killed her wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And they said many of the female prisoners housed in, in the uh, all-female prison have been victims of sexual abuse at one time or another, and it would cause incredible disruption and problems in managing the prison as a whole to introduce into the prison a transgender woman who had murdered her wife. They said we would have to keep her in solitary confinement. And there, is, there are strong arguments now that solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment itself they they said we think that the security issues would make it too dangerous to keep her in general population in our all-female prison and we think after surgery it would be too dangerous to keep her in the male prison and so the answer is don't give her the surgery because it would be too dangerous now judge wolf had uh, found that argument lacking in credibility noting among other things that the current uh, commissioner of Corrections in Massachusetts was previously commissioner in another state where they were actually housing a post-operative transsexual in uh, in an uh, all-male prison so uh, without any security problems. So, you know, the, the, this argument is going back and forth uh, on both the security issue and on the treatment issue. I don't think this on-bank will be the last word necessarily. I think it's possible because this there was a lot of amicus support in this case. There were a lot of organizations that got involved in this case. It's possible there will be a cert petition. The U.S. Supreme Court has never addressed the question of what medical treatment is required under the 8th Amendment for transgender inmates. It just hasn't been addressed. Uh, maybe this case will turn out to be the vehicle for that. But okay. in the meantime, Michelle Casella, who's now in her sixties, uh, will not get sex reassignment surgery for now.
0: All right, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing an interesting new parental rights case out of New York concerning a birth mother who wanted to have it both ways with an ex-partner. All right, we're back discussing the case of Ariaga versus Dukov, a unanimous panel decision from a mid-level New York appellate court, finding that a birth mother is judicially stopped from arguing that her former partner lacks standing to seek visitation after earlier suing her for child support. Can you tell us about it, Art?
1: Yeah, uh, this involves Estrilita Ariaga and Jennifer Dukov. Uh, they had been living together beginning in December 2003. They registered as domestic partners in 2007. They decided to have a child together. Dukov became pregnant with uh, anonymous, anonymously donated sperm. She gave birth to their daughter in November 2008 while they were living as domestic partners. Uh, they shared res- parental responsibilities, but Ariaga never legally adopted the child. Their relationship ended in May 2012, and Ariaga moved out of the, uh, of the home in September of that year. The child at that point was about four years old. Ariaga continued to visit with the child several days a week. In October, uh, after Ariaga had moved out, Dukov filed a petition in the family court seeking child support. And in support of that petition, she had to allege that uh, Ariaga should be responsible for supporting the child because she was a parent. That's a basis for uh, for seeking an order of child support. And Dukov, of course, uh, the response was, under New York law, I don't have any rights. I don't have any parental rights. How can you require me to give support? Uh, but the court resolved that question in favor of Dukov and ordered Ariaga to make child support payments. Now, in the meantime, Ariaga wanted to solidify her legal right to visitation or even to join custody. So she had filed a separate petition in the family court seeking t- custody and visitation uh, by court order. And uh, once the family court had ordered uh, her to pay child support, she filed an amendment, amendment to her complaint. Uh, she informed the judge before whom it was pending that she had now been adjudicated a parent of the child and therefore had a right to seek custody and or visitation. And now it's Dukov who's turning around and saying, well, hold on a minute, under existing New York precedents, uh, since you never adopted the child, and since during the time when we were together, New York did not have marriage equality, so you weren't married, you're not a legal step-parent to the child, you really have no basis for uh, seeking a custody or visitation order, because you are, under the Allison D. v. Virginia M. case from the early 1990s, you are a legal stranger to the child, and so you have no standing here. And the response, of course, is, well, hold on a minute. The family court has ordered me to pay child support, and as part of that order, had found that I'm a parent. If I'm a parent for purposes of child support, well, then I'm a parent for purposes of custody and visitation. And so she raised the argument of judicial estoppel. Once a court has decided an issue favorably to a party, that party can't turn around and argue the opposite in a subsequent proceeding uh, between the same parties, certainly. And both the trial court and the appellate division here, a unanimous decision by the second department in Brooklyn, said uh, judicial estoppel here applies and... uh, Ariaga, who at that point in the case had decided she was just seeking a visitation order, she was not seeking joint custody. She has a right to visitation by court order, and the court specifically rejected the argument uh, by uh, Dukov that Ariaga should also be bound by judicial estoppel. She said after all, in the prior case, she argued that she wasn't a parent in order to escape. Uh, child support, the court said, well, no, that's not how judicial estoppel works. Judicial estoppel says if you win on a point, then you're stuck with that point yeah. in subsequent litigation, even if you'd want to argue against it. She didn't win on that point. She lost on that point. So she can turn around now and argue that point and say that she was adjudicated a parent. Uh, so it's an interesting outcome. I mean, we continue to struggle in New York with the legacy of the Allison D case yeah. uh, because the uh, Court of Appeals has rejected the use of equitable estoppel. Uh, The equitable estoppel theory would be that the birth mother has represented to her partner that her partner will be a full parent of the child. And the partner in reliance on that has uh, remained as a parent, has performed parental duties, has provided support, et cetera, et cetera. And, and therefore, the birth mother should be equitably stopped. Yeah. The Court of Appeals has rejected that. Yeah. They've said that would require an intrusive inquiry in every case as to the nature of the relationship, et cetera, et cetera, and things wouldn't be clear cut enough.
0: Yeah. So the Alice but, and D case requires biology or adoption or adoption. And uh,
1: and at the time of Alice and D, adoption wasn't available, but uh, there was a subsequent decision from the Court of Appeals making it available. And, yeah. And so. Now, uh, same-sex partners of birth mothers can adopt yeah. with the permission of the birth mother. Sometimes the problem is that after the child is born and after things settle down a little after the birth, the birth mother has second thoughts about allowing her partner to adopt. Right. Uh, and so sometimes we have cases where you read in the court's opinion that uh, they, they made out adoption papers, but somehow they didn't take it all the way through the process or they didn't want to pay the fees associated with having a home study done or whatever. Or maybe they didn't feel their home would stand up very well in a home study, uh, but for any any event, uh, unlike the case law in several other states which haven't accepted uh, the equitable estoppel theory. We still struggle in yeah. New York,
0: and we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast this year about the marriage presumption and how that has been somewhat of a workaround for couples that are married before they have kids. Right. But that's the that's the big thing. I mean, you'd have to be you have to be married before the child comes along, so that doesn't and apply You have to, to have
1: them. an anonymous sperm donor, according to a recent case yeah. that we discussed.
0: Yeah, um, but I actually worked on uh, pro bono uh, my when I was still practicing this case that uh, established that child support is. Uh, a possibility it's hm versus et and that came out at the same time the court reaffirmed ls&d so it's incredibly complicated uh situation and there's all there's lots of talk that the legislature could fix a lot of these problems but uh well the
1: legislature could but new york state's legislature is politically divided in such a way that getting rational legislation on just about any topic is very difficult
0: yeah all right, we'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of note segment, we'll be discussing a Rhode Island Supreme Court decision uh, resolving freedom of religion, speech, and association challenges under the state constitution, uh, brought by Catholic firefighters forced to participate in a parade. All right, we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition. In 2001, two Catholic firefighters in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, received a work assignment to drive a fire truck in that year's Pride Parade. What happened next, Art?
1: Well, what happened next was uh, I think that uh, these firefighters inspired various comments from people along the parade route, and they felt embarrassed uh, at the, the remarks people were making. Uh, they also uh, encountered some snickering and remarks from co-workers. They, they stewed about this for a while, and they finally decided to file a lawsuit. They felt that they shouldn't have been required. After all, they had protested initially uh, when the assignment was made. They weren't going to go in any gay rights parade. And uh, their boss, the fire chief, uh, said, uh, well, just a minute, you know, this is you know, the mayor. <laughs> it turns out the mayor had a role in this. This was a very political thing that uh, many organizations that have parades would like to have a fire truck, a fully-staffed fire truck in their parade. And this year, for the first time, uh, it seems that the Providence Pride Committee had asked and had received a yes, uh, and the mayor was backing it up. Uh, So they decided to sue. Uh, They claimed that there was discrimination, that there was infliction of emotional distress, but most significantly for purposes of this new Rhode Island Supreme Court decision, They said it violated their constitutional rights of free exercise of religion. They said they should have been allowed to refuse to participate on the basis of their religion. And uh, the motion that went up to the Rhode Island Supreme Court for review here was a motion by the now former mayor and former fire commissioner uh, saying that they enjoyed qualified immunity from suit in this case and they should be dismissed from the case as defendants. Uh, The city of Providence was also a defendant. So they were basically arguing on their own uh, that they should be dismissed on their grounds of qualified immunity. And the uh, trial court had refused uh, on the, the qualified immunity. It said, we have much more fact-finding to do in this case before I can make a decision on that. Uh, and under Rhode Island practice, this would be an interlocutory appeal that would not be allowed as of right. So they had to petition the state Supreme Court uh, for a writ of certiorari to consider their immunity claim. So the immunity claim comes before the Supreme Court. and The Supreme Court says, well, we don't have to decide the immunity claim if we decide that the plaintiffs didn't state a cause of action here against these people. And they decided that the plaintiffs hadn't stated a cause of action, Uh, the main focus being on whether a firefighter has a First Amendment right to refuse a valid work order based on his or her personal religious beliefs. And they said no. They said... uh, uh, this isn't forced speech. This isn't forcing you to state that you agree with gay rights or same-sex marriage or something like that. You were assigned to run a fire truck as a relatively anonymous person in the parade. You aren't you know asked to carry a banner or communicate a message. that if any message is communicated by the fire truck operating in the gay pride parade, it's that the city as a political entity or the fire department as an entity is supportive of gay rights. But it doesn't say anything about any of the people who are running the truck. It's not compelled speech. Uh, And this seems to be in line with uh, Supreme Court precedents recently, which have discounted the argument that public employees, when they are engaged in their official duties, are also engaged in personal First Amendment expressive activity. Uh, And it seems to me that this case might provide some interesting basis for arguing against clerks who refuse to issue marriage licenses to same-sex partners, even though their state law allows it, because they say my religion or my own personal ethics or morality doesn't allow it. Uh, When someone is acting as a government employee, they're acting on behalf of the government, not on behalf of themselves. When they're speaking in an official role, they're speaking on behalf of the government and not themselves, which is why if they say something that the government considers wrong or that considers inappropriate, they can be disciplined even though this could be seen as a content-based regulation regulation of speech, it's not their own speech, it's the government's speech. And drawing the line between personal speech and government speech can be difficult. But it seemed, it was pretty clear to the court here, that uh, the government was not compelling these people to engage in any kind of anti-religious action. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that their particular religious beliefs disapproved of homosexuality Uh, was seen by the court as basically irrelevant that they did not have a valid constitutional claim and therefore there was no need to decide the immunity issue because the court said this case has to be dismissed there is no basis for finding any liability on the part of these officials or the city to these firefighters
0: and since they actually brought these claims under the uh, under their state constitutional guarantees uh, it looks like it's the end of the row they can't yeah, I, don't think, I, don't
1: think, I don't think they made a uh, at first an argument. Yeah. it was a uh, state constitution, freedom of speech, speech. Right.
0: Yeah. All right, interesting stuff. That's all the time we have for today. One quick plug: if you happen to be an attorney in the New York area needing CLE credit, please join Art and I on Wednesday, January twenty-first for our annual year-in-review CLE at the offices of Davis Polk. Uh, there's registration information on our website. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in February.